Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now. This is The Other Thing I Do, and this is our 400th episode. My guest this week is Jordan Gavaris, who you'll remember from Orphan Black as the gleefully chaotic Felix, a role he's recently reprised alongside co-stars Tatiana Maslany, Evelyn Bershu, and Christian Brun in the boat rocker podcast Orphan Black, The Next Chapter. You might also have caught Jordan in projects like Gus Van Sant's The Sea of Trees, the ABC series Take Two, and the recent freeform show Love in the Time of Corona, and now he stars in Prime Video's The Lake as Justin, a gay man who brings the teenage daughter he barely knows back to his family cottage and immediately reverts to his own teenage self to win back said cottage from his competitive half-sister Maisie May, played by Julia Stiles. Created by Killjoy's writer and producer Julian Doucette, it's a sunny, silly comedy with a weird little heart, and you should check it out. Jordan picked Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria, the 2018 remake of Dario Argento's 1977 classic about a young American who arrives at a German ballet academy to study dance and discovers she's wandered into a coven of witches bent on either killing her or claiming her as one of their own. Dakota Johnson stars as Susie Banyan, the role originally played by Jessica Harper, with Mia Goth, Tilda Swinton, Chloe Grace Moretz, and Renee Sutendijk floating around her. I am a huge fan of the original film, not such a huge fan of this one, but that's okay. This is someone else's movie. I loved this film. I adored this movie. I've seen it multiple times. I've, I've intentionally invited friends over and then held them hostage while I screened it on our projector. Um, and they've all liked it too. I, I had, although it, it is one of those films, every time it came up, you know, for about a year after its release, either people viscerally despised this movie with every fiber of their being, like they just hated it or they really loved it. And they were, you know, at, at best maybe disturbed by, by the visuals, but there was something about the world that was really appealing to them. And that's how I felt. Um, I don't know why the world was so appealing to, I think we should unpack that. Uh, I'm very curious. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm on the record. I did not like it. Um, I understand what he's going for and I respect the effort. And I think there are things in it that are really fascinating, but it also seemed to line up my issue with Guadagnino as a filmmaker, which is that he is more interested in moments than in cohesion. Um, ah, he's okay. about mood, right? And atmosphere yep. and, and texture. And so you have moments and, and entire scenes in the film that are just the fact that he went to that level of trouble to realize and recreate 1976 or 77 Berlin with the Bader Meinhof gang running around in the yep. background. That's a remarkable new way into the material because those elements are completely ignored in, in Argento's yes. film because he just didn't, like, they have no place in that movie. Um, no, and they, they weren't important to him, clearly, at, at all. Yeah, and, and you know, whereas Argento's Suspiria is this this claustrophobic suffocation uh, with with um, goblins screaming at you from the speakers and, yeah. and Argento doing everything he can to put a, a glove around your throat and squeeze. Yeah. Um, Guadagnino's film is is outdoors. Like, it's expansive. It's big. Even the rehearsal spaces seem larger than the cavernous mansion of the original film. Uh, and centering the academy in the city rather than on the outskirts. All the choices are interesting to me. And I and I, I appreciate them. Because I, I, a slavish remake of such a definitive film would never work, I, yeah. I think. Like people, even Argento couldn't quite recapture it with Mother of Tears and, and the films that subsequently tried to. Like, I mean, I really think the original Suspiria is maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest European horror film ever made. Uh, maybe Don't Look Now comes close. But. Such, I was just about to, I was actually going to 
say something about don't look now. That's oh, yeah. an old statement, but one I humbly and wholly respect. <laughs> I, and it, you know, this is sometimes, and this maybe opens up to a broader conversation about trusting actors, impressions of films and their reviews of films, because something that I really respond to is world building. Like this is something that I am immediately drawn to both as an actor when I'm reading a script or as an audience member. And of course, character is important to me. Of course, you know, uh, structure is important to me, I guess. And maybe this is, this is part of it. I had such low expectations for a remake of this film because I, I similar to you, like it is Suspiria is, I mean, it's a cornerstone of horror it's uh, seminal to European horror. It is a, a, such an impressive visual feat. But I guess I was just, I just loved that if I had any expectations about the movie, they were totally subverted. His desaturated palette was one of the first things I noticed, which was just completely the opposite because Argent, all Argento was interested in doing was playing with color and, you know, all of these kind of strange references to deco and like, even certain architectural periods mm -hmm. yeah. uh, other than Deco, like there was some, I guess I, I, I was so struck by Guadagnino's elegance. Like the film felt like how I, how I wanted the dancing to feel. He really, and I, I don't know if this was intentional. I'm going to assume it was used physical movement as an inspiration for how the camera moved our, our relationship to its characters on screen. There was just this, beautiful ballet like elegance to this film and something so harsh. I mean, the voodoo doll scene as the girls being tossed around the room of mirrors, mm -hmm. there's a like harshness in it as well, which is, you know, ballet looks really elegant, but actually it's, it's really fucking painful. And those, those dancers are, are destroying their feet and demanding things of their bodies that are almost inhuman, almost like demonic. Um, yeah. So I really felt like, which is actually a place where I feel the original film kind of fell flat. They didn't, you know, he didn't embrace the dance at all. He wasn't particularly interested in the dance academy. That yeah, was no. just, that was just a, a setting. It was a backdrop. It wasn't yeah. something that was integral to this story, but there's a brutalism and an elegance to dance that is found in so few places in, in the world. And the fact that Guadagnino embraced this and really used it as a set piece to the movie, I just thought it was brilliant I was so in, um, and for all the other reasons, of course, that you mentioned setting the dance Academy in Berlin and setting it against the conflict and, um, really feeling that a lot more feeling it at all, uh, yeah. for the original, I just loved it. And I loved how weird Dakota Johnson was. I mean, she's such a, uh, she's such a distinct presence on screen and someone that, you know, maybe shouldn't have necessarily worked in the part, but it was such a creative casting choice and it, it really worked for me. Um, I also just thought, by the way, I have to say Jessica Harper doing that tiny part in the remake. She was so good. She isn't, the woman's not acted and, you know, at that time, like 15 years and yeah. Yeah. she was just, there was, she built so much history with, uh, you know, I can't remember the old man's name, the character that Tilda Swinton oh, played. Oh, the, the other Tilda. Uh, yes, the other Tilda. Was it Joseph? 
I want to say it was Joseph. I think so. You know what? I'm going to pull it up just to make sure I have it. Do you do this a lot in these podcasts? Do people often, can they not remember characters' names? Uh, I, <laughs> honestly, there are times when I can't remember it. And, okay, and, great. I feel, I don't feel so it's quite as bad now. Oh God, no, no, no. And the other thing too, is people talk, like you, you talk in rhythms and you get excited and you roll over yourself half the time. Uh, it is Joseph Klemperer, who Ooh. is credited as Lutz Ebersdorf, which I, again, we Beautiful. can get to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know that's a real point of contention with this movie. Some people were very bothered uh, by the, the, the Trinity of characters that Tilda Swinton decided to play. I, it was spoiled for me before I went into the movie, which I was a little uh, bit bummed about. Um, I can't remember what theater I saw it at. I think it was an arc light in LA. I also, yeah. it, it was, it was really, I mean, pre pandemic, it was really fun. Um, the draft house wasn't opened yet. I, I was really excited about the Alamo draft house opening in downtown LA. And I know they would have screened the movie had they been open. Um, but I think we went to an arc light in Glendale and, or, or maybe, no, it was the arc light in Hollywood. My God, the arc light's not even there anymore. Yeah, no. I'm having a moment right now. Oh, man. Did you see Whoa. it in the dome? Did they screen it in the dome? I don't, I, could... think was, I don't think it was in the dome. I think oh. it was just, I think that there must've been another blockbuster or something that was out at that time that had the dome. But I don't, th- I don't, cause I don't think we saw it in the dome. I think it was just a standard, one of the, you know, mega theaters, but um, at the end, you know, when they're in the cavern under the studio and the ritual begins and all of a sudden the screen is awash in that just blood red, all those blood red hues and that creature emerges. There was something, um, I think what the film had been building to this kind of physiological sensation that I'd been feeling the whole time. I just started to feel sick mm. watching this. I said, I, I said to my husband afterward, as we were leaving, I was like, I I've never felt sickened by something. So, so viscerally upset by something that I'm watching. And it was horrifying and violent. And it was the brutalism under again, just like dance, I guess um, it was the mechanism, the internal mechanism you know, we're watching this dance studio. It appears so elegant on the surface. And as you climb into the caverns underneath the studio, well, then you get to this like brutal, uh, bone-breaking heart, disgusting heartbeat. Um, yeah. and it's, I, the, I, it's the line in Big Trouble in Little China, right? The black blood of the earth. And somebody says, what is that? Oh, that's great. Yes. Yeah. That's a perfect way to describe it. Yeah. The thing that you can't fully understand. It's been there before us. And it's, yes. it's going to be there afterwards. And it's just, it has a purpose that we can't fully understand and people are trying to tap into it and it never goes well. Absolutely. Total, total like uh, permanence, real permanence. And there was something about what he captured in that sequence that it was disgusting, um, truly disgusting. I mean that in the truest sense of the word, but it was, I, I couldn't stop watching. Mm-hmm. I felt like, uh, you know, Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange with my eyes sprung open. I just couldn't, blink. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I didn't even really know what the fuck was happening. I, as Dakota Johnson's pulling her chest open and, you know, and there's still some debate about uh, what decision Guadagnino made with respect to Mother Suspiria, whether, um, whether 
Dakota Johnson was the reincarnation of her or uh, whether she was possessed by her. I tend to believe that uh, she was, she always knew she was like mother superiorum, you know, that's why she was drawn to Berlin. It's why we're, it's why she possibly or probably killed her mother. Yeah. I mean, it's the flashbacks seem to support. Yeah. I think there's something more, or even if it's unconscious, it's something operating within her. Absolutely. It's there and she's drawn to this place and she's drawn to Berlin and whatever this thing is, will be exercised from her. And, and um, I want to know though, because you didn't like it. I, you know, you, you liked the mood, you liked the world. You felt like, I, I remember you saying something about moments that it felt much more like, you know, these little vignettes versus yeah. an actual cohesive story. It's like he's trying to tease out the things that bothered him about the first film, the things that stuck with him and and almost expand on them. I mean, it's not even that I, I don't reject the work. <laughs> like it's, it's really fascinating. I, I think that his, his skill as a director is texture and in realizing people don't talk about the entirety of his films in the same way they do about other filmmakers, right? They talk about the uh, Ray Fiennes dancing in, um, in a bigger splash. They talk about uh, Michael Stuhlberg's monologue in call me by your name. They talk about the dance sequences in Suspiria. They don't talk about the walking. They don't talk about the sitting. They don't talk about all the dialogue scenes that were just sort of there because they have to be there and they're functional. And in this film, at two and a half hours, it just feels like he is doing everything about the original that he liked, but he's leaving out all the stuff that he doesn't want to deal with, which means the film has this strange list. Like the pacing is the thing that kills it for me. It's just, there's no sense of mounting horror. It's just people wandering towards these awful fates. And again, that's not a negative. And the second time through, it's actually, it's always easier to watch a film you don't like the second time because your brain doesn't have the expectation. It's the same reason the second time through a great movie is even better because there's some part of you that's going, oh, don't fuck this up. Come on, come on. And then you know the second time that you'll be okay. Um, And Suspiria revisiting it and watching the pieces come together, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just that it is so interested in things that I don't necessarily connect to from scene to scene. Um, and the individual moments that, that pop are still very strong. Um, and Peter Kaplowski uh, at, at TIFF, was, he and I were just talking about it in passing like a week ago. Um, and he said that the one thing that he hadn't thought about and that Argento never considered, but Guadagnino grabs and uses, is the idea that dancing is spellcasting, that it can be physical, that it doesn't have to be a chant or like he's completely removed all of our expectations about what witches are and how they work. And starting by having them be more interested in, you know, like school board elections, basically, because so much of this is about internal politicking among the coven and telling us right off the bat that this is what's going on is different from the Argento film, which is a mystery where we discover gradually that this is happening. And so his genius of having them be the most basic sort of fussy infighting people rendering them as human and then showing us how they work over an hour later and having it be just so completely incomprehensible and disturbing that he thought Peter's argument is that's the way he hooks you. And I remember the dancing and liking it way more than I remember the arguments about, you know, who's going to be the next chair. And maybe that's it. Like he, he tricks you in a different way. And it was one that I just having foreknowledge, right? Because this is a remake and, and it's a film I know intimately. I'm like, 
when do we get to the fireworks factory? When do we see the the witchery? And um, that was the, I think that was my barrier to entry. I get that. I do understand that. And you're echoing a lot of what the, the, some of friends that uh, also saw the film, friends that I saw the film with and people that watched it after. And we, we chatted about you're, you're echoing a lot of what they said as well, especially fans of the original. Mm. I wonder if I'm so uh, averse to having my expectations met. Okay. And I, I, I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but like, especially when it comes to remakes or it comes to property or, or um, you know, script, uh, novels to screen or, or a property that I'm familiar with coming sure. to screen. Like I'm so, I'm so juiced when my expectations are subverted. And I don't know what that is. I, I don't know uh, why I seem to respond to directors that do that, directors that tease me or... Um, in this case, you know, as you say, waiting for the fireworks, waiting for the witchery, because so much of the original Suspiria is about, of course, it's about witchcraft. Um, and you're right, this film was so much more about the politics of this coven than it was the actual spell casting they're doing. But it was the promise of something that kept me watching and kept me gripped. And maybe it's manipulative, maybe that's manipulative directing, but it, it worked. I bought in completely. I, I would, you know, I clearly am the person that would join the studio and get hooked by the witches, but I, <laughs> I did, I really, I, I did, I was so um, excited by the idea of him withholding the thing that I wanted until the very end, until he showed me so much, until he rips the curtain back so completely that it actually shocked my system, that I was so horrified by what I was seeing, I, I couldn't look away and felt sick after. It's like a really great ride on a roller coaster, you know? It's not it's not great unless you want to throw up after. Yeah, yeah. I had a couple of those experiences and they're always anxiety-based uh, within a film. Yes. Um, it's the pressure of, of like the, the, the absolute refusal to let you out. Yep. Um, and again, like it's, it's a beautiful argument for watching a movie in a theater in the dark, locked in without any distractions. And it's something that's going away yeah. even faster now, thanks to the pandemic, because we've all just adjusted to watching movies at home. But, you know, I'm still the guy who doesn't pick up his phone in the house when, when the movie is on. Because <laughs> um, why, why would I? But it, but it is that... It's that amazing alchemy. It's the surrender. It's, I mean, it is a, f a form of hypnosis, right? Like that's why yeah. people respond so powerfully to horror films in particular, because you've already surrendered. Like the well, act of sitting in the movie theater is giving yourself over to it and letting yourself be worked over. This is the thing that I kind of have been thinking about a lot lately is just what makes a movie good? And I know, I mean, what a question, but <laughs> what... Because for all intents and purposes, this is a film that it gripped me. I couldn't stop watching it. The visuals were beautiful. I wanted to know more. I, you know, he, he had my wrist and was leading me down the hallway the entire time. Um, and then it makes me think like, if what you're saying is true, if the movie is just sort of this pastiche of moments and, uh, if it was still successful to the extent that I I had to pay attention, is the movie still good? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, all movies are pastiches of moments. They're, they're, sure. It's it's not a failing if that's like what was it Billy Wilder who said all you need is two great scenes and no bad ones. I feel like possibly yes, but or I Hitchcock. was born in 1989. <laughs> but I think yes. I've been on a wilder kick. I'm not that old either. But, uh, and yeah, and James Cameron argued that all you need are the last 20 minutes to be good. For That's right. Yes, yes, the, yes. The recency effect. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about my new Shiny Things newsletter, a weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming show. This week's all about old horror movies as I check out the new Synapse edition of The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue and Aerofilm's new Blu-ray of Girls' Night Out. Yeah, I didn't know either. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. It's me. I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. And there is no answer to what makes a movie good because it's always so personal. Like that's the, yeah. the the greatest thing about it is that 500 people are experiencing this mass hypnosis event together and all of us are bringing our own stuff to it and interpreting it in different, like the movie doesn't change. The movie never changes. Yeah. But we change. We are different from each other, from, from ourselves 10 years earlier, all of it. That's, it's this incredible act of collective faith to see a film. And I'm trying really hard not to go, totally over the top on, on the cinema theory, but this is our 400th episode. So what the hell? Um, 400th episode. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, that's great. It's an honor and a pleasure. I can't believe we did this. This is something I started doing seven years ago and it's still going. And yeah, it's nuts. Um, but the, the idea that Suspiria as a concept also depends on you, like demands you to give yourself over to it because it's unrealistic on its face. Like the, yeah. the start of it is a film like it is making you are making a bargain with with the material from the very beginning because of how it's presented, but also what the story is that it's telling. And, um, you know, I have a, a, a an old friend of mine who can't watch films that are horror films specifically that are rooted in Christian theology, like The Exorcist, because he knows none of that is real and he just can't tip uh. over into fantasy yeah. So this is something where even though witchcraft isn't real, he could still plug in um, because it's fantasy to begin with. And yeah. I mean, you can argue the Judeo-Christian thing, but I think that's really more to do with his relationship to religion and atheism. But there's a sect somewhere that's uh, of, of it's got to be fundamentalist Christianity that like, to even acknowledge the existence of the devil is to encourage his work. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Right. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've heard some color of that before. Um, Deep rooted American weirdness, like it's yeah. puritanical. Um, but the There's idea that very that, by the way, like I, I mean, I know this is kind of tangential to our conversation, but that kind of uh, that kind of Christianity, that kind of those uh, subsects of mm. extreme subsects, they they remind me of witches. I know they're they're essentially praying to God and Jesus or whatever it is that they believe in, but there's something very there's a darkness that some of that evangelism has that just yeah. reminds me of, of witchcraft. And I'm like, you know, if, if the devil is real and you know, it's all a big lie, like, are you guys the lie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you buy into the wrong thing? I mean, right. it's, it's, it's Robert Eggers, the witch, right. Where in the end paganism turns out to be the more comforting thing for this one poor character who's, yes. who's, who's been a Puritan and suffered so profoundly because of it. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it all goes back to the Puritans and the, and the idea that like, it's the evil eye. That's what it is. The, 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 it grew out of that, that, you know, you constantly have to ward off some sort of yes, just random angry thing, which then coalesces into the devil over centuries. Um, and then you end up with something like Suspiria where there is no central evil, right? Like there's a matriarchal structure which goes against the concept of the devil, even though that seems to be who they're worshiping in the end. Like they're, they're all, they're all interpreting things that in their own way. And of course, both versions of Suspiria, the original and the remake are all about people with belief systems that can't support the world they live in. Yeah. Um, and, and Swinton plays that. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was her idea. Why don't I play three characters? It'll be fun. Um, and, and I, I, I think as I see more and more of his films that Guadagnino is a director who just says yes to everything. Yes. To, every, to everyone's <laughs> yes. ideas. Yeah. Yes to a single color palette for the last 15 minutes of a movie. Um, yes to abject insanity. But you know what? This is another thing. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up The Witch because that's that's a film and Suspiria that I, I will say, you know, my imagination when I think of witches can often get quite cartoony. Like they're, they're this... Um, what they've been sort of transformed into over decades of cinema and storytelling is a kind of, there's a silliness around them more so than there is around other like lore, uh, more so than things like vampires or mm. these other things that we spend so much time digging into, but witches don't, I've decided witches don't get enough attention. And uh, <laughs> I think they can be really scary. And that's something that Suspiria did well for me anyways, they made the um, the darkness and the uh, the ferocity and the sort of you know because the the coven operates kind of like a like a high control group or a cult. There's all that authoritative leadership, and right. um, I I I don't know. There was just something really scary about it. The witch did it too, in, in a way that you know because I I am kind of an agnostic person, and I don't. I don't really pay too much attention to anything Judeo-Christian um, in nature. Not that witches are, but um, yeah, I, th I think kind of like your friend, it, 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 for some reason, it just, it really got to me. It really freaked me out. The idea that these, these women could be out there and they're, they're connected to this like sickness, the blood of the earth, um, this, like this real, real, demonic devilish sickness i don't know I, I it it was delicious and it terrified me yeah and the thing the other thing that i love about it is that we never really understand what they want like no, their, their not, aims are beyond us or beyond the course. film anyway they're not and they're not actively uh you know praying at the altar of the devil it's not like you know we watch them worship much of anything um, just each other, it, really. Just each other. That's that's it. And that's quite disturbing. There's something a bit twisted and unsettling about the idea of, uh, yeah, self-worship. And I don't know. Oh, God, my therapist would want to unpack that. Um, <laughs> I, I I just, yeah, I, I think there, there was something very, uh, very strange and unsettling about the idea that they're, they're aims are just beyond, you know, a plebeian brain like my own. I couldn't possibly understand the depth and depravity of what they're after. That's yeah. fantastic to me and just so scary. Yeah. And well, then the idea too, that, that Susie is there to take it, 
and she doesn't know what it is. Like she's there to lay claim. Um, makes Johnson's performance so much more interesting the second time through because she does have this, as you say, she seems like a weird choice, but she's so interesting, a physical yeah. performer, right? That it makes it work. She, you can buy her as a dancer very, very easily. Um, but there's also this quality of hesitancy and she's got, even as she's aged, I mean, I remember seeing her in Ben and Kate and loving her clumsiness, like her verbal yeah. clumsiness, her hesitations and her 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 ticks of of delivery and she's found a way to keep that in her physicality here where she she's playing someone i think who's a little younger than she really is or projects herself that way yeah and watching her navigate carefully like she's feeling her way through this world but she's being pulled by something that's already there and i couldn't tell the second time through whether Johnson is trying to tell me that she's being pulled by herself. Like it's something she already knows or it's something environmental, but that's such an interesting, weird thing that's going on in almost every scene she has. Um, she it's like does, a reverse magnetism. Yes. She has this. I know the quality that you're talking about in her. It's a kind of a self infantilization where she seems there's, there's fundamental aspects of her character that seem almost like a little girl, which I think is, is what you're talking about in playing someone younger than she is like her hesitancy, her cautiousness, her the, energetically, there's just something about her that seems kind of, yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was so impressive spinning the two plates of this, this sort of projection of a, a, a girl younger than she is, or this self infantilization. And then this devilish knowing that there's something inside of her, something creeping, getting larger, something she's drawn to that's quite sinister. And she just kind of spins these plates in unison so perfectly. That's what made me so, you know, cause I didn't really know much about her as a performer. I didn't see the 50 shades of gray films. This is the first thing I've ever seen her in. Oh, really? Yeah. And I mean, of course I've seen her in lots since um, I actually quite liked the lost daughter and I thought she was really interesting in that. And, um, but I, I was just kind of so struck at this strange duality. She, she occupies this very unique space that I don't, it's specific and, uh, and uh, impressive. And I don't often see, I haven't encountered a lot of other actresses that are able to do this thing that she can do. Mm -hmm. And, um, she was an, a super unconventional choice, but I was so happy when she was on screen because there's something a bit dangerous about her presence, but also kind of like a little girl, and, you know, kind of maybe, I don't know, plays into that trope of like the two twins in The Shining, like the little, uh, the, the child of a horror film, you know, the bad seed is always, is terrifying. And it's sort of like the story of the bad seed grown up or what's seeding inside of her. Yeah. Um, I think she's playing, I mean, I think some part of the performance is that Susie doesn't know. Like she's, she's discovering this about herself as it goes. And so she starts as a literal innocent like something has brought her there, but she, she's just looking forward to the experience. Like she, it's the kid thing. She's, she's, yeah. she's cultish and, and eager, but she's also completely unprepared for anything. Like environmentally, she's, she's on the wrong foot as soon as she lands. And for a dancer to play that, like she's sort of stumbling over herself. It all suits her. It all suits Johnson. I mean, in, in a bigger splash, she was so recessive uh, as, as, the girl who may or may not be finds his daughter, who he brings along with her, yeah. with him. Um, and and I can see Guadagnino going, oh, no, she'd be perfect for this. This is how I see her. And maybe even that's where it started. Um, but 
she brings something else to it, which is just this weird chameleonic. Here, here is a weird theory that I have. She oh, looks, wow. she looks exactly like both of her parents in a very, very unnerving way because we know what they're, what her parents. It's like you know the when you euthanize an actor when you cast them as a version of themselves and then you digitally make them younger. It yes. never fully works because we know what they looked like. Yep. Unless you're using a version of like Robert Downey Jr. for an Avengers movie where you paste his older face over the actual actor. Yeah. And stuff like, you know, um, the Irishman, it's unnecessary, first of all, but they still carry themselves like older people and they don't they don't look right. Something is wrong. Yeah. Johnson looks so much like Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith fighting for dominance in her face. It, it depends on the angle. It is the weirdest experience um, to watch that happen. So do you feel like he and that he intentionally cast her because that that's sort of reflective of like this battle going on inside of the character? I wonder. I mean, I don't know if he could even articulate it that way, but the the idea that she is the, the sort of this natural chameleon to anyone who's been watching movies for more than 20 years. Yeah. I think that plays for her in a really interesting way and can be used to make her seem mercurial or elusive depending on the film like i don't know that sam taylor johnson really took advantage of it in 50 shades yeah um but there is this she's she's brilliantly cast in those movies because she's hiding something from herself for the whole film which is the attraction um and they're very silly films and her comic timing actually plays in there it actually works i i have a weird grudging respect for those movies because they're made by artists who know they're working with garbage Uh, you know it's twilight fan fiction nobody has any illusions yes but i yeah um i've i've met sam taylor johnson and she knows exactly what she's doing and um just the idea that you're watching uh james foley do the sequels this is the guy who made glengarry glenn ross he knows exactly what he's doing Um, Maybe, maybe that's the brilliant, maybe that's the high art in it all. Maybe that's the brilliance of it all. Maybe that's the brilliance of Guadagnino and maybe that's the brilliance of Suspiria is like, maybe it was all in, maybe what you're describing, the, the, the things you're describing, like it's all, I don't know. I, I, I just felt so wonderfully manipulated the whole time. And that's kind of what's happening in this coven. I don't know. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it's supposed to be frustrating. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's, what, is he the greatest director of all time? I don't know, Norm. I don't know. You're, you know, you're saying these things and no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm not putting I, you on the spot. You don't have to make the declaration um, <laughs> if you don't want to, but I do think he's onto something in the, in the way that he presents this film. I think that it could have been camp and it just refuses to be. Yes. And I think I I expected it. If there was any expectation I had, I thought, well, probably it's going to lean in that direction. Like I kept wondering what the sort of elevated or, or elegant uh, version of that movie was. And I, 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 obviously I was not the person to direct the movie because I couldn't come up with anything. So I think I was just so um, awestruck by its beauty and by how my expectations were subverted and I hear what you're saying about all the things that he didn't want to pay attention to. He just chose to ignore. I get it. I think that's a valid criticism. I just loved it too much to care. I just loved everything about it. Otherwise, uh, I didn't even notice. 
Maybe that's, that's what totally happened. fine. I just didn't even notice either. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think he gets carried away by elements of his films. Like yeah. the, the recreation of, you know, 80s uh, Italy and Call Me By Your Name, which which yeah. sort of overwhelms the characters at, at a number of points where you're just sort of luxuriating in the in the beach that he's rebuilt or the uh, or the yep. texture of an ice cream. Um, and it's okay that nothing is happening because the characters are just soaking in it. Um, and I, I had a very similar experience in Call Me By Your Name. In fact, threatened to go to Italy after we left the theater. <laughs> Threatened for hours. Um, uh, yeah, my my husband was like, well, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but I'm glad that you liked the movie. It's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a, good to have a plan. Like it's, it's an aspirational goal. And I'm clearly very susceptible. I'm very susceptible to uh, directorial influence, which is probably a good thing, given that's what I do for a living. Um, I was going to say. Yeah, I think I think I'm and maybe maybe I'm just not to be trusted. Maybe this whole podcast episode is not to be trusted <laughs> because <laughs> clearly very susceptible to world building. And I, I do. That's what I keep coming back to is I just it, he created a world I really wanted to live in. Like if I could step in there, you know, without the horrors of what unfolds in the last 15 minutes, if I could if I could step into his 70s Berlin, into that desaturated uh, palette into this, this airspace where it feels like anything could happen. Um, but could happen so elegantly. I, I think, I think I would like that. I don't know. Is he doing a sequel? I can dance. I'm not like that. I can learn to dance. I don't know. I'm going to take ballet lessons. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with a joke about how you just don't want to pay the price for it, but you know what? I suspect at this point, you're willing to see what happens. Oh, you'd be surprised what I'm willing to endure. You, you'd, you'd, you'd be shocked. Um, yeah, I, I would, I'll put on a pair of ballet shoes. I don't need my feet. I have, I actually have, uh, I've been told anyway, that I have very naturally high arches. I'm not a dancer. I've never danced before in my life, but I think the stumbling block would be how wide my feet are. They're like flippers, Norm. I mean, I'm serious. Like these things are like, my uncle used to call them hobbit feet because um, they are just to, way too big for my body. I'm like a cocker spaniel. I mean, maybe that's some sort of unknown strength, like Michael Phelps, like the guy's I, got, his, his wingspan makes it possible for him to do things no one else can do. I mean, who that's knows? true. That's, that's uh, very true. Maybe, maybe dance is what I, maybe this is, Maybe I'm like Susie and this whole podcast has been leading me to something that I knew somewhere inside of me. I'm going to be a dancer. <laughs> that is a perfect out. Uh, it's a perfect ending. Did we, I mean, did we miss anything? Is there anything you wanted to talk about? <sighs> Let's see. It covered Jessica Harper's beautiful, thoughtful performance in yeah. five minutes. I just thought she did so much with that part. Yeah. Having her show up does feel like a benediction. Like it's a really lovely moment. And yeah. she plays a character who isn't there to be celebrated like all of these other sequels do or remakes. No. And it, it feels like she actually is serving a purpose, which I thought was even better. And there's a purity to her character that then feels so, it, it's so ugly when it's taken from Joseph because mm -hmm. the moment is so pure. And it's, it's one of the few moments in the film that doesn't, you're not, I was in fact kind of lulled into a, a sense of security because I, I really, I did think it was happening. I mean, I was a little suspicious of it, but I, it was kind of the moment of pure love and safety in the moment in the movie for him. 
Um, and then when it's taken from him, it just, it just is gutting. Like it was awful to watch. Um, and it doesn't help that, you know, he's an old man and it's just sad when terrible things happen to old people. Mm-hmm. But, um, then I just told myself it was Tilda Swinton and prosthetics and we were fine. Yeah. The thing um, that fascinates me about that entire choice is that she looks like Bowie in the hunger. Like it, it seems like there's a deliberate choice to model the old age makeup after him. Oh, well, I mean, she kind of looks like Bowie in general. Doesn't I she? know. Like I have asked people who've worked with her if she is David Bowie, because I wouldn't put it past him either. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, unique, I hope that's real. Oh, yeah. the world seems full of possibilities if that's real. I have interviewed her years and years ago. She came through TIFF for a film called Technolust that she made with Lynn Hirschman Leeson, uh, somebody she's worked with off and on for decades. And the movie is just this weird meditation on a scientist who makes little clones of herself and keeps them in a house and dances with them. It's it's barely a film. It's more of an art project. Yeah. Um, but she is one of those, there's a handful of people who look exactly the way they do on film as they do in person. You know what I mean, right? Like the, oh, yes, the I do. luminosity, the thing. Yep. And it is remarkable how how little she's changed physically. I mean, she's aged, but she still looks like an impossibility. Yeah. Like she just, and she does look like Bowie up close. And it's so strange that they never worked together. I mean, I think they collaborated on something that never, never happened. But the choice to style her, again, I'm sure it's Gordon Nino just, this is a good idea. Like, or either she came up with it or he came up with it. And it's, this is a good idea. We're running with it. Yeah. And it's just, it also works in that same chameleonic thing that it, that does the Johnson's face does where you keep looking, you keep looking closely because something's going on and you can't figure it out. And when it clicks, when it clicked for me, it was, it was in the, um, it was when once the character's on the altar, when he's on his back and it's just yeah. lying in repose the same way Bowie's body did in the, in the hunger. And it's like, Oh, that's it. That's been bugging me for two and a quarter hours. And now it feels like, a really smart idea that's been bugging me for two and a quarter hours. I mean, and you saying that, like looking at these characters and knowing something's wrong or like knowing there's something underneath. Again, I don't know if that was his intention, but like that is, that's how I felt every time Joseph was on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, you are kind of trying to see under the mask or under what you think is there. I have to believe that's intentional. I, I because that's also uh, Susie's, her, her journey. Like there's something underneath her. I mean, there's something physically underneath the dance studio. Yeah. It's got, I don't know. Is it brilliant? I think it's brilliant. I think it's, I think it's just, just brilliant. I got nothing else. My thanks to Jordan Gavaris, whose new series, The Lake is on prime video right now, pretty much everywhere. If you're looking for a casual summer distraction, it's a pretty good bet. Thanks also to Natanya Thomas. She knows what she did. You can find Jordan on Twitter at Jordan Gavaris, all one word, and you can find Suspiria on Blu-ray and DVD from Elevation Pictures in Canada and Lionsgate in the U.S. It's also streaming on Prime Video and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just $20 at payhip.com semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out that newsletter I mentioned, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you enjoy it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, 
Get your booster when you can. I'll see you in episode 401. And really, thanks for listening.